Welcome to Is It Halloween Yet? Episode 5, a spooky little podcast where we talk about all things horror and ask, Is it Halloween yet? I'm afraid not, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. It's 167 days until Halloween. I'm your ghostess, Spencer. Let's see what we've got on the slab. This week, we've got news and a different kind of deep dive into 2013's The Conjuring. This will be the first in a series of these deep dives leading up to the release of Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I hope this series we can talk about the events around the movie, and how things that we like or even love can still be harmful in ways that we don't immediately think about. But first, the news. Good news for kids who stalk the horror aisles of their local blockbuster video. Legendary Entertainment is rebooting Faces of Death. Cam writer Issa Miza and Cam director Daniel Goldhaber are signed on to write and direct. As someone who loved both Cam and was scared to death as a child to watch Faces of Death, during the press junket for Spiral from the Book of Saw, Daryl Lynn Bowsman, in an interview with comicbook.com, is very adamant that he wants a chance to reboot the Leprechaun franchise. I don't know if I can do it justice, so here's a clip of the interview. The Leprechaun movie, don't ask stupid questions. It's always the Leprechaun movie. And I'm going to take this chance because I know Lionsgate's listening in that room over there. Give me the Leprechaun franchise. I mean, seriously, I've been asking for 15 years. I would love to see Bowsman take up the franchise. As our last story showed, everything is getting a second look to be modernized. And I would love to see what a modern horror director with a love of the IP and some money behind it could do for Leprechaun. So don't be shy, Lionsgate. Give us what we want. Another moment from the Spiral Press Tour with Darren Lynn Bowsman was his live tweeting the watch along of Saw 3. He dropped some trivia that until Spiral, Saw 3 was the hardest movie for him to get through the MPAA and that he even had to reach out to modern gore master himself, Rob Zombie, for how to navigate the notoriously opaque and fickle rating board. We've got more spiral news towards the end of this week's news dump. Godzilla vs. Kong is making its way to 4K and Blu-ray on June 15th, and there is a confirmed audio commentary. Film nerds rejoice. We're going to get to listen to more about behind the scenes of those two big magical boys fighting each other. That's just a little under a month till we get to find out more magic about how that movie was made. Speaking of monsters, Universal Monster movies are making their way back onto the silver screen. Last week, we talked about Chloe Zhao taking up the Dracula project. This week, we're hearing all about Renfield, Dracula's henchman, who is going to get his own solo movie. It comes from a pitch made by Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman. Chris McKay and Ryan Ridley are set to direct and write the feature film. It's an interesting choice. Renfield is an inset in the novel to let the reader understand how vampirism works. So I wonder just how much Dracula we are going to get in this film. Witches, curses, magic mirrors await Amy Smart and her return to the horror genre in A Hundred Candles. The trailer's out now. You can get this on VOD and digital in North America today, May 18th. 
The trailer's giving me really late 90s, early 2000 vibes, and I'm actually looking forward to sitting down and watching this. The concept is interesting. It follows a group of friends playing a game where they must tell a hundred scary stories to put out a hundred candles in the room or be cursed by a witch forever. Sometimes all a project needs is a good trailer. Like you hear, I read a lot of plot summaries and like see a lot of stills, but sometimes like I still just am not super hot on any something until I get that trailer. That is exactly what happened with me and Stephen King's Apple TV Plus project, Leslie's Story. The concept seemed outside of what I liked from King. The trailer, however, gives me big, sad, gorgeous, morose landscapes. It's just beautiful. Everything Apple TV Plus does is beautiful. That is the one thing that is exciting about Apple. They just aren't afraid to spend money on production. <laughs> King has also written every episode himself, so that's exciting. And the show stars Julianna Moore and Clive Owens. It begins streaming on June 4th, so I probably will do at least a first episode review. And if I'm into it and it grabs its hooks into me, then we'll probably be talking about that a lot this summer as it airs week to week on Apple TV+. Courtney Cox is giving Scream fans something to get excited about. While visiting with Casey Becker herself, Cox talked about the upcoming fifth Scream movie on The Drew Barrymore Show. She says, it's not a reboot. It's not a remake. It's a brand new launch. I don't know what that means. Like, clearly it can't be a reboot or a remake because Courtney Cox is in it and she is playing Gail Weathers. So, yeah. We know she will be involved. I'm excited to see Scream, Scream 5, which is just titled Scream. It's not Scream 5. So I'm confused but interested. So that's where I'm at. As long as it's got ghost face, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> A24 is getting the horror train started. We're starting to hear more and more about their up and coming projects. We saw a trailer this week for The Green Knight. We talked about a stills that came out of it and the release date last week. And now we're getting word about upcoming projects that aren't even filmed yet. First up is God's Creature, a psychological drama set in a fishing village in Ireland. Written by Shane Crowley and directed by Sadler Davis and Anna Rose Homer. The story focuses on a mother and the repercussions of a lie that she tells her son to everyone around her. It sounds interesting. I really like cozy, misty town, dark secret movies. So I kind of feel like this is right up my alley. The next bit of news from A24 is about their upcoming slasher flick, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. The production has cast internet's favorite vaccinated man this week, Lee Pace. Which is interesting. I love Lee Pace. He's great. Pushing Daisies is great. I am excited to see more details on what this secret slasher is all about. We don't know any plot summaries. We're just slowly getting a cast list. IFC Midnight bought the rights to We Need to Do Something, written by Max Booth III, adapted from his novella of the same name. The movie deals with a stranded family as they realize they must do something about the horror that is not only destroying them, but the world at large. Filmed in October of November of last year, directed by Sean King O'Grady, the small cast and crew spent a month in the bubble so they could make this film safely during the pandemic. It looks 
interesting to see the stills I've seen. I'm excited we're going to start getting these like pandemic movies. I know a lot of people aren't, but like horror is a great mirror of what people are going through at the time that they're going through it. And they're sometimes not appreciated in the time that they are coming out, but they are a great time capsule. And I'm excited for the emotion and all the claustrophobic stuff that's going to come from the last 15 months of living in lockdown. Regina King is getting in the director's chair for Bitterroot a comic book adaptation being produced by Legendary Entertainment. The comic book centers on a family of monster hunters living in New York City during the 1920s Harlem Renaissance. I cannot wait to see how King brings this world to life. If you haven't read these comics, you need to get on it. Put it on your TBR, make a point to read them. I'm very excited. I like Regina King. I like her directing style. And I am excited for this comic to come to the big screen so more people know about the comic and the property in general. Forever Purge got a trailer this week, and it does one of my favorite things. It makes a horror movie feel scary in broad daylight. We didn't learn much more than what the props summary that was released a few weeks ago, but this trailer really shows us what a ride we are going to be in for. The Purge, like Saw and other franchises before it, has done a really good job of capturing the political climate of politics in America. And I've always questioned if the new Founding Fathers Party would take getting rid of the Purge lying down. It seems they do not. Sci-Fi Network is really leaning into horror. In the past few weeks, we've talked about Slumber Party Massacre reboot, and we all know about the Don Mancini-led Child's Play series that is coming soon. This week, we heard about Bring It On, colon, Halloween. Written by Dana Schwartz and Rebecca McKendry, the movie will follow a cheerleading squad as they fight for their lives while being forced to practice in a creepy, closed school gym. Sci-fi wasn't done there with the horror announcements. The Day of the Dead series is coming to our small screens this fall. The 10-episode series has four episodes directed by The Void and Psycho Gorman director Steve Steven Krozanski. Day of the Dead is one of my favorite Romero movies. It's the best of the original zombie trilogy, so I'm excited to see how the story will be expanded and modernized on. And I'm excited to see the gore that's coming out of Krozanski's episodes. You know it's going to be great. Miramax's Greenlit, a pandemic-centered home invasion movie by screenwriter Kevin Williamson, that's all we've got for now, but like I said, I am very excited for these pandemic horror movies. We're starting to see a trickle of Halloween kills, stills, and talks. We've got to be getting a trailer soon. This week we got a still of Michael holding a knife doused in blood. Uh, not a whole lot to go on, but I adore the chemistry between Judy Greer and Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween 2018, so I can't wait to see these two ladies phase Michael again. In a little bit of box office news, Spiral, the Book of Saw, topped the box office this weekend with $8.7 million. Horror fans are a little bit nervous because Jigsaw in 2017 did $16 million, but I think everybody needs to calm down. It's a very different landscape. I think Jigsaw released on Halloween weekend, which is always a bump for horror movies, and it didn't release at the end of a global pandemic. Lots of people can't go to the movie theater. I can't go to the movie theater. I haven't seen Spiral yet because 
I'm not vaccinated and I don't want to go into a movie theater until I'm vaccinated. So I won't see it for another two weeks because I get my second shot this week. I'm counting down the days until I can go see Spiral, but I just haven't been able to get to a theater because of the pandemic. So $8.5 million for being a horror movie and the ninth installment in a series in a climate where people are still afraid to go to the movie theater, I feel like is a good haul for them. In other spiral news, do you love Mr. Snuggles, the creepy pig puppet that replaced Billy? Well, you're in luck, my friend. Trick or Treat Studios is creating replicas of the little guy. I'll put in the show notes a link to where you can look and see what he looks like and how to order him. The Unholy will be getting a split release with a digital HD release coming this month on the 25th. That's May 25th. And the Blu-ray headed into your homes on June 22nd. I'm still waiting to watch this religious horror flick because I, again, can't go to the movie theater. But I'll probably watch it on the 25th or there around, even though the reviews haven't been great. I'm, I'm a sucker for demons and curses and weird catholic horror movies love them don't know why but i do so you'll probably catch me watching that later this month and finally we're getting some details about the paramount plus pet cemetery movie first off lindsey beer is getting into the director's chair of maybe kind of sort of a prequel you know the drill when we find out more so that's gonna do it for the news this week This deep dive, I hope, will be a little bit different. Yes, I'm going to talk about the movie, but I also kind of want to talk about the ethical implications of doing horror based on real life events. I think when you're working in such an emotional space as horror, there needs to be an extra level of care that is taken with the stories that are inspired by true events. First off, a lot of what we know about the Warrens has changed since The Conjuring premiered in 2013. I can't say that this new information hasn't made me like the film less. It has. Upon rewatch, I've had to reconcile my love for the characters and the couple that the Warrens are in the movie with who they were in real life. In the movie, they're portrayed as caring and loving and honorable people who are just trying to help people at a really tough point in time in their life. When in reality, we're lionizing a couple who preyed on people's pain and trauma for their own personal gain. Ed Warren admits that they would read the newspaper to find spooky stories, and then he would stand in front of the house, draw the house with ghosts coming out, and then they would take that to the homeowner and be like, you have demons or whatever. And that's just preying on people and their fear of not feeling safe in their home is kind of despicable. <laughs> like, I... It really has it really has changed how I feel about the series as a whole, which is unfortunate because the production value of these movies 
and of The Conjuring specifically is gorgeous. The the cinematography and the directing is top-notch. All of the acting is beautiful. People are really committed to the characters that they're playing, which you don't always get in horror movies. Patrick Wilson's Ed Warren is kind of like husband-boyfriend goals, right? Like, he's supportive, he is protective when it feels like he is needs to be, like when he feels like his partner's going too far and not stopping themselves. He's really sweet and caring father. I think the interaction with his daughter in the room where all the cursed objects live is like a really touching moment that brings you to Ed's side. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't yell. He matter-of-factly is like, yo, you know you don't, you aren't supposed to be here. Like, you can't be in here. But did you touch anything? Like, he's protective in that, like, he wants to make sure she didn't touch any of the cursed objects that he believes to be cursed. So it's sweet. And, like, he has the conversation with Robert parent where he's like telling him about the exorcism and about Lorraine's like powers right and how like it takes a little bit of her and the last time the exorcism went bad and she saw something and it took a lot and like he doesn't want to lose her and he's always trying to protect her and that just doesn't square with the accounts of Ed Warren as we've gotten them and I get it They want to make the Warrens a protagonist, so you have to make them sympathetic. And Lorraine Warren was a consultant on these movies until her death. So you're not going to get the bumps and flaws and faults when someone is allowed to have that kind of editorial control over their life. That doesn't mean I think we shouldn't talk about it. Like, I definitely think we should spend time thinking about who who these people were. Is it right to lionize them in such a way? And that's what I'm hoping we're going to, like, talk about. So I've read a bunch of historical debunkings of The Conjuring story. I've read a bunch of stuff from Caroline and Andrea Perrin about their conviction that this is a true story. I've read a lot about the lawsuits. There have been so many lawsuits against Warner Brothers dealing with The Conjuring. I think the most famous of these is the demonologist author Gerard Riddle, who sued Warner Brothers for $900 million. I guess the best place to start is probably that 2017 lawsuit. The basic logistics of this lawsuit is Gerard Brittle wrote a book called Demonologists, The Fascinating Life of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And when he was brought on to write that book for Ed and Lorraine, there was no competing works provision. So the book came out in 1979. I think the agreement is for 1978. Around in the late 70s, they made this agreement. No competing works, especially about their lives or experiences as paranormal investigators. So he's basically saying Lorraine Warren didn't have the jurisdiction to give her life rights to Warner Brothers. It was Gillard Brittle who would have those life rights and the 
would need to be sought for permission to make stories about the conjuring and whatever. And it gets like real dicey. Like, uh, New Line Cinema told the screenwriters of The Conjuring under no circumstance could they read Demonologist because they didn't have the rights to that book. Also, during this lawsuit, he tries to get an injunction on The Conjuring 2. That seems like a fair step. He's like, hey, you're infringing on my work. You have this one movie out there. I don't want another movie out there. So he tries to get an injunction and... I don't know what the calculus behind this at Warner Brothers was. Like, this is sometimes used as a defense for these kind of cases. But they say that the author has no claim because technically this film is under fair use because it's based on historical event. Which is where we get all the headlines and articles about will Warner Brothers try to say in court that ghosts are real? Like, is that what we're going to get? Brittle's legal team like comes back and is like, listen, this is not based on historical fact. And there is a statement from him that is Lorraine and Ed Warren's claims of what happened in their Perone farmhouse case file, which the defendant freely and publicly admits that their Conjuring movie was based on, does not all jive with the real historical fact. This is a pattern of deceit that is part of the scheme that the Warrens have perpetrated for years. There is no historical fact of a witch ever existing in the Perron farmhouse, a witch hanging herself, possession, satanic worship, or child sacrificed. Brittle says... At the time he was writing The Demonologist, he believes the Warrens' accounts of their work to be true. Now he believed he was duped, saying the allegedly based on real life films are at best unauthorized derivative work. And of course, this really gets into if you believe in ghosts, if you don't believe in ghosts. I don't want to get into that because there are other historical things that have nothing to do with the like demonology part of this that are just flat out lies. Lorraine and Ed have basically lied about a woman for their own personal gain. And you're thinking like, Spencer, this woman died in 1885. Like, why do we care about what happens to the name of a woman who died in 1885? History shouldn't remind Bajabat Sherman as a witch, but because The Conjuring is so popular, that is what will, that is what the modern history of her will be remembered. She was someone who lived, died, was by all intents purposes uh, a fine mother and wife and had a fulfilling life that she lived until the age of 87. None of that jives with what she says. And I also think it was like pretty upsetting because Ed and Lorraine definitely helped fuel the satanic panic that would take over the United States and cost millions of dollars in legal fees and just like bring about a modern moral panic that didn't need to exist. I also think it's worth examining why we're able so freely to think of women as witches and how historically that has been used to demonize women who don't do what society wants them to do. They make a claim in the movie and in the case file that Bashabat was a descendant of one of the witches of the Salem witch trial. 
none of the people who were at the Salem witch trial were witches. They were women who weren't served justice. Like, we don't pejoratively use the term witch hunt because the Salem witch trial was above board and on the up and up. So let's learn a little bit about Baj about Sherman. She was born in 1812. Her f- parents were Ephraim Taylor and Hannah Taft. Ephraim's first wife was named Bashabat, and he named his daughter after her, which is kind of sweet. She never lived on the Arnold estate. She was a Sherman. She was neighbors of the Arnolds, but she wasn't on the Arnold estate. She never worked on the property, and she never had any contact with the child who did die. There was a child who did tragically die on the property, but she wasn't there, had no connection to them. She married pretty late. She was in her 30s by the time she got married. She had four children. The surviving son had a son of his own, and then they had a son, and they had a son. So there's descendants. She has descendants who are alive today. Now imagine how that feels. Like you're just somebody who's like a Sherman, and like that's your family lineage. And someone's like, nah, you're great, great, great-great-grandmother was a witch who turned a stone, killed herself, declared herself to say that she was a servant of Satan and murdered a baby with a knitting needle. Like, that's horrible accusations to make against a real person who has a family, who has descendants, who are alive today. Think if that was your family's history that was being played with in that way. Would you be okay with it? Bathsheba is also buried in the cemetery next to her first husband, along with her children. I'm having a hard time believing that the very Christian community in Rhode Island that she lived, there were three churches, a Methodist, a Baptist, and a Episcopalian church in the area. I'm having a hard time believing that such a religious area is going to let a woman who hung herself from a tree and screamed, I'm the servant of Satan, or whatever they say, declared herself a servant of Satan in their holy cemetery next to her husband, next to her children. Also, We have to talk about journalism at the time when she was alive. The Just the Facts Ma'am journalism we think of is a fairly modern invention. We don't really see that a lot at that time. Journalism was sensationalized. If you go back in time and look at obituaries from the time, a lot of them would place scandalous events and rumors in their life in there and I think we do that a little bit certainly to an extent today we talk about with famous people if like they're infamous or famous for something that is less than flattering that does get included in their obituary I think being accused of stabbing a baby in a head with a knitting needle would probably have made it into her obituary and it does not she died On May 25th, 1885, from a stroke, know that she was given a funeral in the Baptist church. It was presided over by a Baptist minister. And I just, again, just can't square (laughs) that, like, this woman is a witch and 
she still gets to have all the rights of a good Christian woman that lived by the values of 1885's Christianity. Like, they just it's just fabrication, right? And, like, I think that it's it's a disservice to this woman, her descendants, and the, the strength of the movie, right? Like, there's no reason to go out of your way to slander a, a dead woman when you could easily just give her a new name. Like, do you think the name... Bathshabet is cool. Sure. Keep Bathshabet. Like, cool name. You think it sounds like a witch's name? I don't know. Like, keep that name. Give her a different last name. Give her a last name that's not any of the families around there, right? Like, if you're going to make up a backstory about someone, like, don't use a real person's name. Especially when you're out there claiming that your film is based and inspired on true events. The only true events in this book are the Warrens came to that house and were with the parents, right? Like, that's the true event in this. I didn't think I would feel so strongly about this. I actually didn't think this would be where my research went. I thought we would have, like, more debunking about the, about the, the, the ghosts. Like, were the ghosts real? Like, someone spilled the beans that the ghosts weren't real or whatever. There wasn't a lot of that. Other things that have come out is that the woman who owned the house when the movie came out, sued Warner Brothers in 2015 because people were vandalizing their house. They were just coming onto their property. The film isn't filmed at the house in Rhode Island, but they do next to nothing to obfuscate where it's at. Like Rhode Island is a small city. I mean, small city. (laughs) Rhode Island is a small state, so I get that that is hard, but like they might as well have just posted the address at the end of the film. Uh, the owners have lived in that house since 1987 and they lived there in peace until 2013 when the owners were unindated with horror fans who had to get to the house that The Conjuring was based off. Like, can we just have a moment? Don't do that. Like, you don't need to see the Amityville house. You don't need to see, you know what I'm saying? Like, just don't do that. It's cool to drive by if it's a drive a buyable thing, but like I can understand why people would be frustrated that people are hauling up in their yard and taking pictures and doing that stuff. Like, would you want people in your front yard taking pictures all all the time? Probably not. I think it's probably important to talk about what sparked my wanting to get critical about the Conjuring series. And I'm going to do all of them. July 8th, I will have my first guest on the podcast, who is my co-host on The Weekly Patch, Kaylee. She's going to come on and we're going to talk about The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, which is actually the movie that made me want to re-examine how I thought about the whole series. Because that movie is about an actual murder trial. Somebody died. One of the brothers of the girlfriend and wife now of the murderer isn't excited to have his connection to that story being publicized he's sued the warrens i guess we'll see if he sues warner brothers i hope that warner brothers at least contacted him but we're going to get into why that movie has made me really think about based on real fact horror I think another thing that's hard for me to reconcile with The Conjuring is 
during the Warner Brothers lawsuit, we got a really shocking allegation against Ed Warren that he had a 15-year-old girlfriend that Lorraine knew about. It really sucks that that's out there now. That really sucks that that's how he acted and that we chose to make him the hero and the good guy and the boyfriend goal that he is in these movies. I also would be lying if I say I didn't enjoy it. I just watched this movie a couple days ago for the, my boyfriend saw it for the first time. He was struck by how beautiful it is. I agree. This movie is beautiful. The acting's beautiful. The story's great. It's, it's everything you want. A ghost, horror, paranormal horror movie to be. It is slow and plotting and does what it needs to do. But I think that it is a a disservice to you and to the collective humanity if we don't take a look at things that we really like and see what what is in there that may not at first be apparent to us as hurtful or harmful, but may be hurtful or harmful to someone else. And contextualizing your love of that, right? Like, I think there's nothing wrong with people. I think we're getting a lot of it with promising young women and spiral. I keep seeing this on Twitter a lot too, of people wanting horror movie podcasters, reviewers, and commentators. It's either got to be I love something or I hate it. And if that's the kind of reviews you want, I love it, I hate it, this is not going to be the podcast for you because I will. I refuse to look at media in a black and white because it can't be. It just, it just isn't black and white. It is varying shades of gray. And that's what makes it, that's what makes stories good. People can find things that they like and things that they don't like. And everybody's experience leading up to when they see a story or read a story or engage with a video game will bring them to a different conclusion about how they feel because we're all different. And having curiosity about other people's experiences with media is a good thing. It makes you a better person. It makes you more open-minded and more willing to look at the world around you in a critical way. So I think that's where I'm going to leave it this week. I'm Spencer. I am your ghostess. And you can meet me all over the internet at MissNintendeek64. I stream on Twitch. I do regular streams on Monday and Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific. On Friday, I do a thing called Friday Night Frights at 6 p.m. Pacific. We're going to play spooky horror games. Right now, we're playing Resident Evil Village. We're only two playthroughs into Resident Evil Village. So please come on out and hang out and watch us play the very spooky dollhouse troll man vampire lady game. You can follow this show at a Halloween club on Instagram, on Twitter, and on YouTube eventually. I really want to get a custom URL for YouTube by the end of the summer. So 
To do that, I need your help. I need 100 subscribers. So please go on over to the YouTube, subscribe, like, leave a comment. You want to talk to me about why I'm wrong about The Conjuring? Do it under that video. It'll be right there. You can do it right under this video. But that'll do it for this week. Have a good night. Sleep. Or don't. Super Shepard.